Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. rally going on in the bond market today. The 30-year Treasury up 21.30 seconds. Why are they buying and will they continue to buy? Let's ask Bob Eisenbeis. He is the vice chairman and chief monetary economist for Cumberland Advisors, and he joins us from Sarasota, Florida. Bob Eisenbeis, thanks very much for being with us. Let's jump right into it. Uh, sure. Give us your analysis of what you believe will happen tomorrow and what the questions will focus on following the decision by the FOMC, because Janet Yellen, chair of the Fed, is holding a press conference, which we will carry live. Sure. Uh, I think given the sort of parade of FOMC participants that began about February 22nd or thereabouts with Governor Powell, uh, we've seen a pretty remarkable a parade of people suggesting that they're going to be a rate hike tomorrow. So I think, and markets believe this, they priced in essentially a 100% probability that there'll be a, another 25 basis point rate increase. And so I think that's what we're uh, going to see. Uh, the interesting thing is that that will be a rate increase following the one in December and the December GDP number, which is the most current one that will be available, essentially was baked in the cake before the December uh, meeting. So the decision is really not based on GDP for the first quarter of this year or anything else. It really hinges on the employment and inflation situation. And I think they will declare victory as far as their objectives are concerned, and that will be their rationale. Uh, Bob, you know, we've had a number of analysts come on and say that the market is inadequately pricing in inflation and the possibility of the Federal Reserve unwinding their balance sheet unwinding their balance sheet or the Treasury Department potentially uh, selling 50 or 100 year debt. In other words, 30 year bond yields are too low, according to a lot of analysts. Do you agree? And if so, where should they be? Well, I mean, clearly, we are in a disequilibrium situation. So uh, if the Fed were to return policy to normal, we'd be looking at uh, a yield curve that would be uh, higher than, than where it is. But I don't think it would be too, too much higher simply because our normalization would take place in the context of a world in which other central banks are still pumping uh, liquidity into the marketplace, which uh, I believe while it would contribute to uh, while the Fed's moves would contribute to a more of a movement on the short end, I think you'd see uh, a longer end that would be um, uh, flatter than might be the other circumstance. If you think the economy can grow uh, at something on the order of the rate of productivity growth plus the rate of growth, po growth in population, you're looking at something like 2.5%, and if you put 2% uh, inflation on top of that, you're looking at somewhere between four and four and a half percent. So, what are you advising think, your clients to do? Well, uh, we're we're pretty cautious at this point because there's still a lot of uncertainty. We're not sure about what's going to happen as far as fiscal stimulus and and how this will all happen. Uh, I think 
when the Fed means gradual, they mean gradual, and it's going to take them some. I don't see them rushing to uh, make multiple policy moves the way some of the people are pricing it in. I think is this a five uh, or ten year program? I, well, it's going to take a while to run the balance sheet off, and the, uh, I just don't see them selling assets because, uh, in order to do so, they would have to sell mortgage assets, really, because you're looking at an equilibrium Fed balance sheet somewhere around $1.4 trillion or thereabouts, to keep, which would be consistent with past history of keeping the deposit to, or the uh, uh, currency to uh, GDP ratio uh, relatively constant. The economy has grown enough that that's sort of an equilibrium level, and uh, uh, the only way they can get there is ultimately by winding down the mortgage securities. Otherwise, the Treasury will all run off. So it's going to be an interesting kind of thing. But I don't see them selling assets off the balance sheet if they possibly can avoid it. Right. Uh, well, um, you know, Bobby mentioned earlier that a lot of what happens will depend on some of the stimulus efforts around the world. And earlier today, about an hour ago, uh, Wolfgang Schäuble, who is German's, Germany's finance yes. minister, was speaking to VKU lobby in Berlin, and he said interest rates are too low. He's, but he acknowledged that adjusting uh, to a rising rate environment will be challenging. But this sort of builds on this feeling that even in Europe, uh, benchmark rates are going to rise. I mean, how much do you think uh, they will rise, and what will the effect be here in the U.S.? Well, first of all, if the, if the Fed raises rates, right now they have negative interest rates in Europe. So if you're a, foreign, if you're a, a bank uh, and your choice is either paying 70 basis points thereabouts to uh, one of the regional central banks or – getting one to one and a quarter percent here in the United States, uh, that's a pretty significant arbitrage. So a slight movement in rates in uh, Europe is not going to really damage that arbitrage opportunity. And people don't really realize that something on the order of 40% of the excess reserves held at the Fed are now, in a sense, owned by foreign institutions, their domestic, U.S. domestic affiliates. And uh, those reserves count towards the Basel liquidity coverage ratio. So uh, movements in Europe, at least in the short term, aren't going to affect us much at all, right. uh, particularly when you've got this arbitrage sitting there. Thank you so much for your thoughts. Bob Eisenbeis, Vice Chairman and Chief Monetary Economist at Cumberland Advisors, coming to us from Sarasota, Florida, where the weather is much better than it is uh, in New York City in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. A new estimate shows that 14 million Americans could lose health coverage by next year under the GOP Obamacare proposal, leaving House Republicans in a bind with a dire picture of the bill's effects heading into the 2018 congressional elections. Here to tell us more is Anna Edney, health care reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from Washington. Anna, thank you very much for being with us. I want to start off with perhaps a strange question and ask you if you can tell us who is Keith Hall and why do you why might he feel that he is between a rock and a hard place? Sure. Keith Hall is the Congressional Budget Office director and 
he, you know, has taken, well, his office really has taken a lot of heat in the last, you know, few weeks because the Republicans and um, the president have wanted to sort of prepare people for a score from that office on this um, health legislation that isn't doesn't look that great, particularly um, for how many people will be uninsured under Republicans' plan to replace Obamacare. So Keith Hall, um, you know, has sort of had to take the take that criticism and and sort of deal with the fact that you know Republicans in the administration are basically saying that CBO isn't good at its job, even though it was Republicans who actually put him in charge of this office in the first place in 2015. Well, hold on. So the First, let's let's just talk about some of the things that it found. It found that about 25 million uh, Americans would lose coverage under the plan that basically it would reduce taxes for wealthier people. It would increase uh, the premiums that people would have to pay, uh, typically would fall to uh, less well-off Americans. Uh, and, and so, you know, it raises the question, it, it, you know, yes, it does make the proposed replacement for Obamacare uh, look not so great for a lot of people. And, you know, Mick Mulvaney, the Office of Management, and budget director uh, came out today saying, I don't believe the facts are correct. He said this on MSNBC's Morning Joe uh, when asked for his take on the CBO report. He said, I'm not just saying that because it looks bad for my political position. I'm saying that based upon a track record of the CBO being wrong before, we believe the CBO CBO is wrong now. And first, let's talk about the track record of CBO. Has it always been wrong? Certainly when it came to Obamacare, when the CBO was assessing uh, that, when it was you know, in legislative form in 2009 and in 2010, it made some predictions that were off. It um, CBO predicted very high numbers for um, the number of people who would sign up for Obamacare plans through the marketplaces that the law created, and those didn't come to fruition. And that's where a lot of people are focusing right now. One interesting thing I noticed in the CBO report that came out yesterday is that CBO tried to address this a little bit and said, yeah, we um, you know, underestimated some stuff, we overestimated some stuff before, but we're learning from those each time we go and we really try to take those lessons into account when we assessed this piece of legislation. The uh, current Health and Human Services Secretary, Tom Price, I believe said that uh, this about Keith Hall, I'm sorry to harp on this, but I thought it was interesting. Uh, He has previously said that his vast understanding of economic and labor policy will be invaluable to the work of CBO and the important role it will continue to play as Congress seeks to enact policies that support a healthy and growing economy. This is the current Health and Human Services Secretary, Tom Price. Why would he change his mind so directly? I think that's a great question. And, you know, the the situation that has changed is, you know, now that Republicans also have the White House and are, are able to craft their own legislation, you know, sometimes it's it's very hard to take what CBO is telling you and, and they they want to be able to get this through. They want to get it done in the House at least um, before members go on Easter recess, which is just a couple weeks away. And so, you know, 
for Tom Price to sort of change his tune on on the CBO um, would make sense for what they're trying to accomplish now versus what the landscape was in 2015. Anna, the CBO is an independent group. It's bipartisan. Is there any other agency, any other group that has the known kind of bipartisan appeal to give an additional independent review of the Republican health care plan? Well, we're sort of looking out for that. Um, Tom Price had mentioned that there would be other groups that were looking to assess this um, and that might have different numbers than what CBO came up with. They haven't released those but there are, you know, other CBO directors who worked under previous Republican administrations. Um, take Douglas Holtzikin, for example, who might be able to, you know, make assessments for them that would, you know, work differently. I and mean, CBO has their own way of estimating these things, and not every economist agrees with it. So there could be other groups that would do this differently. Anna Edney, thank you so much for joining us. Anna Edney, healthcare reporter for Bloomberg News, coming to us from Washington, D.C., talking about the latest GOP uh, proposal to replace Obamacare and the Congressional Budget Office's uh, report saying that 14 million Americans could lose health care coverage by next year and uh, 24 million people would lose it by 2026, bringing the U.S. uninsured rate to a record 19 percent. Rico, uh, the fiscal uh, oversight board that was instated uh, for Puerto Rico as it grapples with $70 billion of debt approved Governor Ricardo Rossello's plan for pulling the island out of a fiscal crisis. The only problem is bondholders might have to take bigger haircuts than they have been pricing in. To give us more perspective, I want to bring in Daniel Solander. He's lead portfolio manager of municipal bonds for Lord Abbott in Jersey City, New Jersey, uh, which oversees about $17 billion in assets. Daniel, uh, thank you so much for joining us. What was your take on this plan that was approved by the fiscal board? Well, first, thank you for having me. Um, you know, the, the take at this point is that it's a, it's a real accomplishment that they've agreed to anything at this point. It seemed like it was going down to the end there where the governor and the fiscal board were not going to come to agreement on the plan. So I think it's a big positive they actually came to agreement, agree on the revenues, the expenses, and a plan going forward. Uh, for, for a bondholder perspective, the numbers are a little bit lower than they were before. There's still a lot of uncertainty going forward because there's other revenues uh, that could come in that aren't part of the plan, and there's a lot of ways to structure bonds that uh, can be more creative and still need a lot of negotiation. So it's good they came to agreement, but still a long way to go before they have agreement with bondholders. Could you just go over some of the major portions of the agreement? Because it includes furloughs as well as, uh, well, public corporations, authorities, and legislator and judicial areas are supposed to also cut back. And they still have a problem with the budget because the Ernst & Young report says that they exceeded their budgeted expenditures by between $360 million and $810 million. Maybe you can also tell us why is it such a divergence? Well, 
the, the government there is for a long time. There's been a lot of difficulty getting good financials and getting understanding, and they and they've, it's been, they've been way way behind on their audit, so a lot has not been clear. Uh, there are kind of a few things at the end. They were on the expense side. They did need to cut expenses more than the governor originally wanted to. The fiscal board said a lot more needed to be done. In order to go forward, a lot more needs to be done. The expense side to reduce the size of the government, and on the revenue side, there were issues with some of the forecasts being maybe a little too optimistic in terms of what kind of revenues they could get and different opinions on economic growth. So those were kind of some of the things that had to come together at the end. And, and yes, there, you know, there, there were some um, things the governor didn't want to do, such as furloughs and the whole Christmas bonus system. And there are some agreements now that um, if the governor can come up with other revenues, he doesn't have to cut as much. But right now he, uh, he has to cut some of the things he didn't want to cut for the, uh, for the people working for the government that, that originally he hadn't planned. Daniel, uh, how big is the portfolio of Puerto Rico debt that you oversee? Uh, well, we have a high yield fund in our one of our uh, portfolios, so we have you know, more than 100 million dollars of Puerto Rico bonds in in our portfolio. And um, but you know, it's a low, small percentage, but it's it's, it's an interesting part of the high yield market because in municipals. A few years back, if you remember, you know, Puerto Rico was investment grade. They dropped to the high yield market, became a big part of the market. Um, so they're, they're a decent part of the portfolio, but also they're, there's general obligations, there's sales tax bonds, there are actor consumer bonds, there are power authority bonds, there are a whole bunch of different sources of revenue. So they're not just one credit. Are you, uh, are you underwater? You know, what's surprising is the Puerto Rico bonds have actually, some of the bonds have performed pretty well. Last year, within the municipal bond market, the Puerto Rico index was the highest performing index. So kind of what happened after things really were going bad a few years ago is bonds really dropped to distressed prices. And they rebounded a lot now coming in the last year or so. So some holdings are at a gain, some are at losses. Uh, they're kind of all over the place. But um, you know, there are still some at losses, definitely, because when yeah. they brought the last deal, prices are way down from the last deal. Daniel, uh, is there anything about the recent proposal that would encourage you to go and buy more? Uh, right now, it's, it's it's I guess it's hard to I, mean, I can't really speak exactly what we're going to do on the trading side, but you know it's, it's it's not right now. There's a lot more details for a bondholder to be positive because the numbers did come out a little bit lower than expected for bondholders uh, in the secondary market. Bonds have traded down the last day or so, and uh, there's still a lot of. Are disagreements among different crediting classes, whether it's sales tax and general obligation bonds. So right now, there's a lot of it's tough to really get very optimistic at this point. But the only positive out of it you could get is there is progress. Now they have a fiscal plan. Maybe they can negotiate more seriously. Thanks very much for being with us, Daniel Solander is lead portfolio manager of municipal bonds with Lord Abbott. They're based in Jersey City, New Jersey. They manage over 17 billion dollars under management. Well, the Trump administration has a plan that would slash corporate tax rates, and that could free up more than $10 billion a year for U.S. oil explorers. Let's find out more from Rob Barnett. He is our senior energy policy analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Rob, it's always a pleasure. Give us the information and the likelihood that this will actually come to fruition. Thanks, Penn. 
That's right. Uh, there are numerous Republican tax proposals out there that aim to lower the tax rate paid by corporations here in the United States. And so the current top marginal rate is about 35 percent, and Trump's proposal is to take it as low as 15 percent. There's a House Republican plan backed by Paul Ryan that would take it down to 20 percent. And this has a, a big uh, impact potentially on U.S. oil and gas producers. If you look at the companies in Bloomberg Intelligence's North American Indian Independent E&P peer group. So basically, the domestic oil and gas producers, they could see up to a $10 billion cut in their aggregate tax bill if you really were to go from that kind of 35% range down to 20% range, at least according to our analysis. So that's names like ConocoPhillips, Pioneer Natural Resources, Devon, companies like that that have a strong uh, domestic presence here in the United States. Is all of this money going to basically uh, uh, sponsor more production and cause oil prices to go lower? In other words, is this what's behind uh, the oil price drops that we're seeing today? We know daily volatility in the oil price is influenced by so many things. I wouldn't try to pin any near-term movements in the oil price on on sort of big, broad tax discussions. But I think your intuition is right. If you reduce the tax uh, cost for U.S oil and gas producers, you you potentially uh, make it more attractive to produce oil and gas here in the U.S., and you potentially um, could see, in our view, especially some of the large integrated companies taking more interest in the U.S. because this could make uh, producing uh, oil and gas here in the U.S. more attractive relative to other parts of the world if if we truly do lower the the tax costs that some of these companies uh, have to pay. Now, you know, Harold Hamm, who is the chairman and the chief executive of Continental Resources, he said at a meeting, it was the uh, IHS uh, market meeting uh, for Sarah Week, uh, he's, he's the billionaire share Oilman, he said that the U.S. industry could kill the oil market if it embarks on another spending binge, and he said U.S. production could go pretty high. Is that possible? Well, I certainly think that a number of policy factors may influence whether that outcome actually happens. And so a lot of the tax discussion or policy discussion around energy really comes down to the details. So when you look at the the broad tax discussion, they're talking about taking that 35% top rate and lowering it again to 15 or 20%. But in exchange for that, there is also a strong chance that the energy industry would lose a lot of its favored tax deductions. So that's the uh, the ability to expense intangible drilling costs, the manufacturer's tax deduction, all kinds of things like that potentially go away in this world. The other thing to keep an eye on is that there's also discussion around tax and increasing uh, taxes at the border, so this border adjustment tax. That's not necessarily good news for the industry. So it could be a wash if we sort of lower corporate rates but then add a border adjustment tax. So it, it a lot's going to depend on the details of the tax discussion. Uh, Overall, lower corporate rates tend to uh, be viewed favorably by most 
big businesses, but the uh, the devil will be in the details on what happens with these deductions or what happens with border taxes as part of that overall framework. Let's say uh, the tax cuts do draw in more interest from integrated companies uh, and ramp up or cause uh, some smaller uh, shale drillers to ramp up production. How many new jobs could that create? Well, I think a lot of this discussion is centered around bringing jobs back to the uh, the U.S. And over the last couple of years, uh, there's been a big pullback in jobs uh, in the oil patch, uh, mainly driven by the decline in prices that we've seen. But, you know, uh, over the over a multi-year period. So, you know, as, as a whole, the industry employs hundreds of thousands of people. So if, if you were to, to ramp production, uh, it, it may scale somewhat linearly, although I'd keep in mind that uh, because of the, uh, the pullback in prices, the oil and gas companies and the service providers have gotten more efficient with how they spend money. So uh, the day rates uh, for drilling rigs, things like that, have actually come down. And that's mainly because they've gotten more focused on personnel and other issues and trying to manage costs. So if you see a, a rise in production, uh, it may be done in a more efficient way that doesn't, doesn't quite as much have as much labor associated with it. Again, that's, uh, that, that'll be seen in the marketplace uh, if these things actually happen. But uh, I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't pin too much on this. You know, the oil and gas sector is uh, an important employer in the overall economy, but it's by no means uh, the largest. I just ask you a quick question, Rob Barnett. Give you 15 seconds. Tell me the state of the liquefied natural gas market, LNG, and exports. Absolutely. Well, uh, you know, we haven't seen a whole lot of action there under the Trump administration, but uh, by and large, the uh, administration has indicated they're going to be pro-LNG export, and we'd expect them to sort of continue to push to see U.S. Uh, increase its exports there. Rob Barnett, thank you so much for joining us. Really informative uh, and important stuff, uh, as always. Rob Barnett is our senior energy policy analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, based in New York, talking all about the potential tax cuts for the oil and gas uh, industry. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.